ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. This is Dr. Michael Egner. My guest today is Steve Lofman. Steve and his colleague Howard Glicksman have written a wonderful book called Your Designed Body. It is an application of the theory of intelligent design to understanding human physiology. It's it's a fascinating book. And Steve is an engineer who has a very deep background in engineering design. I wanted to talk to Steve today about whether or not the neo-Darwinian way of understanding evolution can account for the design that we see in the human body. So, welcome, Steve. Uh, It's good to be here. Thanks. So, do you feel that the Darwinian mechanisms of random heritable variation and natural selection offer a plausible explanation for the apparent design? Uh, Well, so... Given that I'm here talking to you, the the answer is probably going to be no. Um, It was a bit of a setup, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, let's just step back a little bit and look at the causal factors that Darwin's theory contains. From an engineering perspective, we can evaluate these. So, what we'll do is we'll take just a little engineering detour, and that will involve looking at three characteristics of each of Darwin's causal factors. The first is the preconditions. What has to be true before this causal factor can do anything? Okay, that's number one. The second thing is the capabilities. What kinds of actions can this causal factor do? What kinds of outcomes can it bring about? And the third thing is the limitations. Are there any inherent limitations of this causal factor? Things that it cannot bring about. So, we're going to look at all four of Darwin's causal factors and look at those three properties. So, the first is variation. Darwin didn't have a mechanism to propose for variation, but he was able to observe that variation does occur. Clearly, that's true. The second causal factor is heritability. It's essential that whatever varies is passed on to the next generation. So, it's essentially inheritance. Uh, The third one, which is the one you hear about the most, is natural selection. And this was really Darwin's big contribution. The other parts of his theory had been around for a while, but his view of natural selection was new. And the last one, and this one almost no one ever talks about, although it's always present, is time. (laughs) You just need a lot of time to do random things, to generate anything useful randomly. It's going to take a lot of a lot of trials. It's sort of like trial and error research. It's extremely inefficient. It's the most inefficient possible way to do anything. In our previous conversation, we talked about how hard it is to solve these problems. How in the world are you going to do it through trial and error? And that's really the open question for uh, any of Darwinism or neo-Darwinism's variations. They're all pretty much similar. Are there any of these systems that you've studied in the body for which there's any plausible Darwinian explanation for their origin? No. Well, I mean, there's some, in theory, these mechanisms could do some things like tuning, optimizing some functions, but generating a new function, no. I would say Darwin himself, in his book on the origin of species, 
set up a test for his thesis. And that was, as he said it, if anything could be shown that could not be generated gradually, my theory would absolutely fall apart. And as we go through the human body, we actually throw down the challenge that we don't see any system that could be done gradually. It would only take one to refute Darwinism, but we can't find any that support Darwinism. There is not a single system in the body that could be built gradually. So, let's just walk through those four causal factors. The first is variation. So, variation since the discovery of DNA usually means some sort of a modification or error in the DNA. So, some kind of a random mutation is a term most people would have heard. So, what's a precondition for random mutation? Well, you, you must have something to mutate. Something must exist. And it must be information because DNA is information. Where does that come from? Variation, random mutation doesn't solve the information problem by definition. Let's see, what, what can random mutation do? Well, mutations can change things in unpredictable ways. So, you could theoretically make something different, maybe something unintended or unplanned or maybe not useful. What are the limitations? Well, they can have no direction. Random mutation is random. That's sort of in the term. So, how can it ever strive for a goal? And I would argue that being alive is a goal. Mutation doesn't care whether you're alive or not. All right, let's look at the next one, heritability. What do you need to have in place before heritability can work? Well, you have to be able to reproduce. If you don't have reproduction already, heritability isn't going to happen. This is one of our two hardest problems in the known universe. How do you create a new generation and pass on your traits? So, capabilities, of course, heritability in theory can allow variations to accumulate. So, that's, yeah, that makes sense. On the other hand, the limitations are heritability can't generate anything. It can't generate anything new. It's, it's just a way to pass what exists on to the next generation. So, let's look at natural selection. This is the big one. It's supposed to be able to do all this fantastic stuff. What are the preconditions? Well, natural selection can't generate anything. There must be something there. There must be an organism that's already alive and already able to reproduce. And that did not happen by natural selection because that's a precondition. So, what can natural selection do? Well, in the book, we go through a lot of detail about this, but bottom line is nature can't select. Nature doesn't know how to select. Selection is a function of a mind. Nature doesn't have a mind, near as we can tell. Nature can't select. It's actually sort of a misnomer. It could theoretically preserve. What nature can do and what it always does is it constrains. So, if you want to be alive, you have to solve all the problems that nature puts in front of you, right? So, we talked about that in our last conversation. You have these hard problems that have to be solved, and it's nature that sets up those hard problems. It also enables the solution, but it doesn't generate the solution. All right, so let's look at the last one, time. What are the preconditions for time? The preconditions is you have to have a universe in which things happen in order through causal mechanisms. The capabilities of time, you know, obviously, more time, you get more chances. Nowhere near enough, but the limitations of time. Well, this is just standard engineering. Time is our enemy. Time is not our friend. Everything 
degrades over time. Time is not the solution to complexities. Time is going to generate degradation. In fact, time is where entropy lives. Entropy is this force, you know, that that makes things, draws everything toward equilibrium. And uh, equilibrium is the enemy of life. Those are problems. Darwinism just doesn't have a tool set that's capable of getting anywhere close to what's needed for life in any form, much less for the human body. Jerry Fodor and a colleague of his wrote a book a while back. Fodor is a, uh, he's passed away, but he was a uh, philosopher. And he was an atheist and a uh, materialist of sorts. But he was highly critical of the Darwinian paradigm. He really didn't think that it could explain much of anything, actually. And he uh, was very critical of natural selection. And his critique, I think, parallels the critique that you're offering here. What Fodor said was that when you look carefully at what natural selection is, it's just a combination of the internal constraints of the living organism and the natural history of the population of organisms. That you, you look at what's happened to the population over, over time and what the constraints are that the organisms have to meet in order to stay alive. And when you understand the constraints and the natural history, you understand everything you need to know about the organism, and natural selection is just sort of empty. It doesn't really play any role in anything. It doesn't have any causal power. And I think what you're describing here eloquently in your work is these amazing constraints that are necessary for human life, for a human body to work. So what you're saying is very much, I think, along the lines of what Fodor was saying. And Fodor was an atheist and he was a materialist. He just thought that Darwinism was, was just nonsense. It just didn't work. As an explanatory framework, it's very weak. Yeah. As a philosophy, it's very powerful. So you need to be clear about what you're talking about when you're talking about Darwinism. Yeah. You know, most people, rank and file people, regular people who are non-scientists and maybe not technical may not see that distinction, but it's absolutely essential to understanding this stuff. As science, Darwinism is as weak at, at its very best. Right. I've, I've wondered a lot about why it has caught on so much, because even when I was a Darwinist, even when I was younger, when I accepted it, I thought it was kind of weak. I just didn't think there was anything else on tap. But I really think a part of the reason that Darwinism has caught on as an idea is that the notion of survival of the fittest is an appealing notion to a lot of people. The idea that only excellence survives this process is an idea that a lot of people like. I think social Darwinism explains not a small part of why Darwinism became such a popular theory. It's kind of a boost to the ego of the people who are winners in life. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. I, but in the end, uh, we use an example in the book, which is one of my favorites. It's the data does not support Darwinism. So I love this. I love this example of the guy after he unties his boat at the dock, realizes that he's got one foot on the dock and one foot in the boat. This is always a dangerous situation because the gap grows and, and the need to choose becomes very hard to ignore. And it's very clear that this is a temporary problem and that sooner or later someone's going in the water. And it's like the materialist philosophy 
is the dock and the data is the boat. The boat is moving away from Darwinism. It's pretty far away. I think maybe it's always been pretty far away, but it's just becoming more and more difficult to ignore. More and more scientists are admitting, often in private, uh, we have some of these conversations, but they won't say anything openly because they're worried about their jobs and their careers. But becoming more and more difficult to ignore that the theory is spent. Darwinism is a spent force. It's explained right. everything it's ever going to explain, and it has nothing left. Right. But the, the problems that it needs to explain keep getting larger. So the more we learn, the more we have to explain. We need a causally sufficient explanation for things that Darwinism just can't get anywhere near. An interesting point is that all the stuff we've been talking about here, Darwin knew nothing about. That is, he had no idea about molecular biology, about any of the details of human physiology. That was all yet to be discovered. And I even wonder if Darwin would be a Darwin's. You know, he was obviously a pretty bright guy. And my suspicion is that if he knew what we know about biology and human physiology today, that he would say, well, of course, my theory doesn't explain that. <laughs> so, but that's just my hunch. <laughs> It'd be interesting to go back and ask him. I mean, he, he was a scientist. He set up tests for his theory, and it hasn't fared well. Right. His exactly. theory has not aged well. Well, Steve, I, I thank you very much. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion. I've uh, had the pleasure of speaking with Steve Laufman, who is an engineer who has deep knowledge on the requirements for a coordinated design system to work. And along with Howard Glicksman, he's published a wonderful book called Your Designed Body, which is uh, a book that everybody who's interested in uh, intelligent design, in biology, and, and in Darwinian theory should read. It's a tremendous challenge to the Darwinian understanding of evolution. So thank you, Steve, and thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.